You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story. Offering insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma, a former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma. Stories that offer entertaining escape as well as insightful inspiration for the journey. Welcome back to the Religion and Fiction Book Club. After taking a week hiatus because of a bit of a cold. Stay tuned for week two, exploring chapters 8 through 12 of A Reimagined Faith. Hey, religious fiction readers, Jeremy Bauma here, back with week two of the Religion and Fiction Book Club. Sorry about the delay. Had a bit of a cold, as I mentioned in the intro. Nothing major or serious, but enough that I wanted to take a week to recuperate so I could give you the best experience for this exploration of Peter Daniel Young's spiritual journey, which, if you recall, is a bit of a mirror of my own spiritual journey during my 20s, about 20 years ago. (laughs) I'm now almost 43, and it really was 20 years ago when I was neck deep in my own sort of crisis of faith, dealing with the very similar questions that Peter himself was beginning to wrestle with in the first seven chapters of A Reimagined Faith. This week, we want to come back to where we left Peter off two weeks ago in Texas and begin to dig deeper into all of the conflicts that Peter is experiencing, not only inside of himself, in his own heart, with his questions, but also the relationships that he has with his co-workers in ministry, his mentors, and also his friends that he's ministering to, who we come to find out are also dealing with very similar questions about how the Christian faith connects to their culture as well as their lives and and whether or not the Christian faith that they grew up with is something that they can still hold on to and still believe in. I recognize all of this is pretty weighty and I'm really thankful that you are along for the ride and have chosen to not only engage my story by purchasing and reading A Reimagined Faith, but also listening to this book club, these episodes, unpacking the chapters and some of the deeper questions that I was wrestling with, and you might be as well. Feel free to jump in with responses to some of the questions I pose down in the comment section or contact me directly. would love to hear how you are wrestling with the content uh, of this book, but especially these questions in your own life as we sit at the intersection of the sacred and story with Peter Daniel Young's own spiritual journey in a reimagined faith. So chapters 8 through 12, let's get to it. Now, if you remember, we left Peter and Ainsley in Texas. And Peter has a bit of a a public spat uh, with Dr. Harrison, who is pretty much his boss. 
And what brings up this conflict is this inner conflict that Peter is experiencing regarding this important question that I myself wrestled with 20 years ago. And that's this. What is the gospel? What exactly is the good news of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection? And now, this is not a question of the necessity of the gospel, the need for Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. No, instead, what it does is questions the point of this good news. What, what is the center of it? According to Peter's ministry and the training he's undergoing, the, the everyday evangelism training, which is very similar to what I myself experienced when I was in ministry, uh, for the core of this sort of version of the gospel, the version of the good news of Jesus, heaven was the point, right? Accepting Jesus as your savior to escape hell and go to heaven. Now, eternal life is definitely uh, a major part of the gospel, uh, an eternal relationship with God that uh, results in not only our forgiveness of sins and our justification now in this life, but also in the next, and the hope of the resurrection of the dead when Jesus Christ returns to put this broken, busted world back together again. But a lot of the questions that his friends are asking and wrestling with are related to not eternity in the future and heaven down the road, but instead the application of Jesus's kingdom of heaven vision now in this life. What matters to them, as well as what mattered to me during my own wrestling, was the significance of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection in this life, and what the Bible says about that, and what the Christian faith says about that. So Peter is wrestling with, and in many ways pushing back against the heart of the faith that he has always known. And I wonder about your own journey. When you yourself have questioned something that's been at the heart of your faith, what was that like? What happened? How did others react? Well, as we know, beginning of chapter 8, Ainsley isn't quite sure how to react. (laughs) She doesn't even really know what exactly he's questioning and what he means about his questioning the heart of the gospel, the necessity of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and the offer of heaven as this free gift. I think we can all sort of sympathize with Ainsley, right? If we've ever been alongside somebody's spiritual journey and the questions they're asking and the doubts they're posing, especially if they come out of left field from someone we've known all our lives, whether it's a family member or a friend, maybe a classmate or a coworker or somebody in our church, and we don't know how to react. And Peter doesn't really know how she's going to react either if he dives deeper into what he's feeling and questioning. But because the urge is so great for him to begin unpacking this inner conflict, he goes for it. He says, you know what, I'm going to take a chance and explain everything that I've been wrestling with. Of course, the emotions come tumbling out, and he doesn't quite know how to explain himself. He wonders what she's thinking, and she pushes back, basically accusing him of not believing anymore. So he's misunderstood. Maybe you know exactly what he's feeling like. You yourself have tried to express what you're thinking, what you're feeling about your faith and your questions to those close to you. 
you don't quite know exactly how to pinpoint what you're feeling or even what those questions are, but you know that you're unsettled and the emotions come tumbling out. You're misunderstood. You're accused of not believing anymore, of leaving the faith. Can you relate to Peter? Maybe you can relate to Ainsley, that person on the side who is witnessing, again, this person dealing with this inner conflict. What has that been like? Have you ever confided in someone yourself about your own struggles, and how did they react? Well, I like how Ainsley ultimately reacts, especially when Peter shares that what he ultimately seems to be feeling is like a fraud, right? He says, because I'm in this ministry leading these students, and I'm supposed to have all these answers, I don't have them. I'm struggling myself. How can I guide these students if I can't even answer them these questions about the faith and ultimately about life? If he can't answer them for himself, how can he even guide his students through them? I feel like a fraud, Ainsley, is what he says and throws down his fork in a huff. How does she react? Well, she responds by saying, Actually, maybe you're more authentic than you've ever been, right? By being honest and open about what he's thinking and feeling about his faith. And I really like that because she goes on where she says, we're in these positions placed on these pedestals by our students who think we know all the answers, that we're the experts on faith and spirituality, but maybe it's okay for us not to know all the answers. Maybe it's better for their own journey to know that we struggle with the same questions they do. We're finding our way forward as much as they are, as much as Clint is. Man, I think that's so crucial as we walk through life with other people and listen to their doubts and their questions about many aspects of life, but especially the ultimate questions about faith and I think as Christians, we, especially those who might be in more leadership roles, a youth leader or a Sunday school teacher or even a senior pastor or a campus minister like Peter and Ainsley, there is this temptation to have all the answers and to appear as though we know it all or at least have it under control for ourselves. Sometimes it's okay to not. And I like how she models this for Peter to say, hey, it's okay if you don't have it all together. Sometimes it's more authentic and relatable when we are honest with others about what we ourselves are wrestling with. I know during the season of wrestling 20 years ago, that was so important and crucial to have others in my life who were there being honest about what they themselves were questioning and wrestling with. In the end, ultimately pointing me to the truth of Scripture and how the church has answered many of my questions over the last 2,000 years. But instead of jumping there, instead it was this effort to be open and honest about what they themselves were wrestling with, as well as creating space for me to wrestle. Of course, one of those major areas that Peter is wrestling with, which was also a major point of contention and conflict 
in my own life, both inside my heart as well as outside in my ministry, was connecting Christianity to our culture and knowing how to answer all of the things that our culture was wrestling with, but also the major questions that it was posing. And I think that the same is still true for today. How does the Christian faith answer life's ultimate questions? How would you answer that? How would you respond yourself? One of the major things that Peter brings up with Ainsley is this recognition that we are no longer in Kansas anymore, Toto, (laughs) as a culture and as a country. We, for a while, could have been considered a predominantly Christian, or at least Christianized culture and country, at least in America, if you're listening here, where I am. Not so much anymore. We are what he would call, as well as others, a post-Christian nation, in the sense that Christianity is no longer the dominant story that explains life, where we came from, where we're going, why things are so messed up how we should understand ourselves as human beings in relationship to other people and ourselves. How do we fix this inner turmoil and shame we feel? And ultimately, where is all this thing heading in the first place? Now, one of the major explanations for this post-Christian direction is the reality that our culture is now framed by a postmodern worldview. I'm not going to get into the weeds again as I did in the storyline, but three major characters are responsible for this sort of shift in the way that people view the world. And you have Derrida, Lyotard, and Foucault, uh, three major influences and founders, you could call them, fathers of postmodernity, a postmodern way of viewing the world and answering life's big questions. It's a very simplistic uh, understanding, I think, in the storyline that Peter engages with Ainsley here. But it does offer a glimpse into, I think, where we are as a culture as well in answering these dominant questions. Because the two prevailing lenses through which culture is engaging these big issues of life are truth and power. Truth and power. Truth is now, has been for quite some time, but I think it's accelerated, especially in the last decade, where truth is relativized to the individual and even more to the community. There is no longer a superstructure of truth that undergirds a reality that stands outside of humanity, in the Christian sense, the Word of God, uh, guiding our lives and how we live and who we are to be as people. And that's because of the issue of power. As Ainley aptly summarized Peter's little uh, sermonette on postmodernity, <laughs> she said, let me get this right. Postmodernism says we all interpret truth according to our own perspective that all truth stories are competing with other truth stories, and what we say is true and normal is really just about the most powerful winning out. Is that right? And that's a pretty good paring down of the worldview that we are now swimming in. And that's really the point uh, that Peter is making in this chapter, is that we need to be aware 
as Christians about the mission field, if you will, that we are now inside as bearers of the truth of Christ and his good news. We need to be aware of how the church has abused its power and how the surrounding culture views that use of power in relationship to truth. I think a lot of that's been playing out recently in light of the scandals that have come out of both the Protestant world as well as the Catholic world in the last decade. Obviously, it's very easy to point out the mistakes of the Catholic Church with the abuse scandals, right, and the very dark stain that has left on the church broadly and and the message and story of the Christian faith. But there have been plenty that have come out of Protestantism, especially uh, the evangelical world in recent years, with senior pastors of these big megachurches inflicting abuse both spiritually but also sexually and many ways emotionally on specifically and particularly women within their congregations. As the credibility of Christianity has taken a nosedive, so too has the believability of its truth. And as other lesser minority groups have gained power, both on the worldview side with specifically alternative sexual orientations and perspectives on gender and identity have gained power, those have competed directly with the truth of Christianity that has a lot to say about human nature and identity. So there is this incredible struggle, a power struggle, if you will, when it comes to what is true. As one minority group has gained power and the majority group has lost power, the conflict over truth has exploded on our cultural scene. And as we end chapter 8, I'd like you just to consider how you have seen this dynamic played out in your own relationships, within your community, within your church, especially relating to uh, Christianity and the struggle over truth. Now, chapter 9 carries us forward in Peter's desire to find a better story, right? A better way of communicating the beauty and truth and majesty of the good news of Jesus that stands well outside and above the simple sales pitch for heaven as this gift, Selling Jesus or heaven itself like a set of Cutco knives, as Peter said. This, in many ways in chapter 9, reflected and still reflects my own thinking about the story of Christ in its bigger picture. It reflects exactly what I was wrestling with 20 years ago. And a lot of what you see in this chapter actually came from the fruits of that wrestling labor in the middle of ministry. And what you find on pages 74 through 77 are pretty much what I sketched out on a a napkin, if you will, uh, coming out of my own training in Evangelism Explosion. I 
put my own fingers to keyboard and submitted a very similar kind of narrative proposal about the nature of this story of rescue. And before engaging what uh, Peter writes and what reflected what I wrote 20 years ago, I wonder how you yourself have come to understand this Christian message. How have you communicated that message to people in your own context, whether it's ministry or family or friends, coworkers, and how what you have sort of come to know or how you have communicated that message, how does that compare with what you see here in chapter 9? Do you agree with my framing, Peter's framing, I should say? <laughs> uh, do you disagree with it? Are there points of overlap? Are there points of uh, disagreement or confusion? You know, this is, uh, as I mentioned, what I submitted to my own ministry during the same season in an effort to better connect the story of God to my post-Christian, post-modern friends in Capitol Hill that I was ministering to, very similarly to the sort of round table that we'll get to at Leo's cafeteria in a couple chapters down. But I was similarly seeking to reimagine the way that I would communicate my faith with my friends. And it was received about as well as it was received by Peter's own bosses. Uh, Part of that was probably because of the tone that Peter was accused of in chapter 10, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, Some pride, some arrogance and pushing back. Uh, But there was also, I think, a resistance to changing what had been part of the tradition of this ministry and the way it communicated the gospel. I think it's very easy to run up against that resistance. And I wonder if you've run up against similar resistance in your own effort to reimagine how you communicate the gospel and the essential message of Jesus to those who are in your own life. And and if you have, how has that been? How how have you navigated that tension of respecting tradition and also taking a risk with your faith in communicating it for the sake of others, for the sake of people who think very differently about religion and especially Christianity than previous generations. I've noticed in my own ministry journey, but also spiritual journey, that that tension often becomes generational. You have older, very wiser men and women who have themselves wrestled with aspects of their faith and of the Christian message. And then there are these younger folk that come up and see it differently and and think about doing ministry differently or connecting their faith to their world in different ways. And that conflict between generations is something that definitely has played out in this story that I wanted to draw out because it is it's an important one. And now that I'm 43 almost, I'm I'm now a part of that uh, older middle-aged crowd than the 20-somethings that I was a part of 
20 years ago. And I myself am wrestling with how to hold on to what is important traditionally, the fundamentals of the Christian faith, while also looking to a younger generation coming up and dialoguing with them about how to communicate those essentials to a generation that I don't get, Generation Z. I'm at the very tail end of Generation X, uh, and my wife is at the very front end of Millennial Generation. And so we're having these conversations ourselves as we're involved in our church. So if you're part of an older group uh, wrestling with the questions and the story, I wonder how that might look to sort of pass the torch along to the next generation. And if you are the younger generation, how do you think that might look to hold on to tradition while also pushing back in the way that Peter is? Of course, that conflict and the tension between generations is on full display in chapter 10, where you have Peter kind of called into a meeting with his boss, Roger, and... There are some accusations thrown around, right? Uh, Peter is accused with his tone of a bit of pride and arrogance. And I think some of that's warranted because uh, Peter, like myself, had some of that going on. You can kind of see that attitude in his pushback. Uh, He thinks it should be this way, but the tradition says it should be this way. And, well, he's just going to consequences be damned, move forward with his perspective and take on things, right? But then you have these accusations being thrown around that Peter is abandoning the gospel and uh, he's trying to change the essence of the gospel and make it more palatable to culture. And all of this, I think, uh, again, brings out this tension with preserving the past while connecting it to the future and that tension between the older generations and the newer generations. And How do you navigate that? Uh, How should young people navigate that tension and older people navigate the tension of holding on while also letting go? And I wonder about the current tension within our current church, the broadly speaking American expression of Christianity. And and where are those tension points that you see in culture, uh, specifically in your church, and how to connect the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ to a a very confused and flailing culture. Now, one of those uh, older people in Peter's life, who is his direct boss, is Bernie. And he takes a very different approach than Roger when it comes to engaging Peter in as he puts it, the change that he was noticing in him. And that came about, I think, in probably the questions he was asking and the pushback he was giving in uh, the ministry meetings. And you know what? Instead of bringing down the hammer, instead of questioning or accusing, Bernie instead listens, he asks questions, he doesn't bring judgment, he pushes back where it's appropriate, and he gives truth. You know, in my own uh, spiritual journey, both in this crisis of faith 20 years ago, but also even the last 10 years, 15 years, I've had Bernies in my own life, uh, allies who have been so crucial 
to standing with me in the middle of my doubts and questions and also alongside me as I sought answers. Some of them questioned and pushed back and gave guidance and counsel, but others just listened and were present and created space for me to give voice to what was going on inside, the tension that was inside me. And man, I just thank the Lord for those Bernies in my life, the allies, uh, the guy who this character was sort of modeled after. Barry Prevett was my boss who stood with me in the middle of this own season 20 years ago. And I am so thankful for him for that. When I returned back home, uh, which the next book, uh, Rediscovered Faith, is largely based on, I had other similar allies. John Fry, uh, who was uh, another ally and comrade in ministry when I was starting to pastor in a church. And then Mike Whitmer, who was my academic advisor and mentor as one of my professors in seminary. And all of them in one way or another, uh, modeled what we see here with Bernie. And I wonder about your own life and your own journey and who those are for you. Who is your Bernie? Do you have one or two or a community of Bernies who can create space for you to wrestle and listen, but also give counsel and pushback where appropriate? Man, I hope you do. Because they are so crucial for what we find here in the story and the journey that Peter Daniel Young is experiencing. Now I want to flip it around and ask how you might be a Bernie to somebody else. How you could stand alongside someone and listen, ask questions, bring no judgment, push back where appropriate, but also give truth. One of the things that Barry, my Bernie, was uh, f- sort of famous for saying in our ministry that we were a part of, he-, he used to say, we all need three people in our lives. We need a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. <laughs> of course, a Paul is somebody who is discipling us, pouring into us, uh, like Bernie was for Peter, or even maybe like Darren is, uh, and he becomes more prominent as the book goes on. But we also need a Barnabas, an encourager who comes alongside us and keeps us going in life and in our uh, spiritual walk with Christ. And then we need a Timothy, people, uh, one person or a group of people that we are pouring into, that we are discipling. Of course, for Peter, that is his group at Leo's the young men, the college students, who he is coming alongside and creating space for them to voice their questions. And we find an interesting interaction at lunchtime in the last chapter, chapter 12. I'm not going to rehash all of uh, the perspectives and the stories of these characters uh, because you got that when you read the chapter. Uh, But I do want to sort of share, first of all, that in many ways, these characters are a a bit of a composite of people that I've uh, ministered to in my past life as a pastor and as a, a minister on Capitol Hill with young adults. They also, in many ways, reflect my own wrestling 
And many of the questions and the the doubts, if you will, that I've carried uh, the last 15, 20 years or so as I've journeyed through young adulthood and into middle-aged and have really wrestled with my faith for my own self. And as we wrap up, I wonder which of these characters do you most closely identify with in the sorts of questions and doubts that are posed? So you've got Clint, who, you know, we met early on, who really is sort of blowing the whole thing up and doesn't know where he's at. The The ground beneath him is shifting quite rapidly when it comes to everything about what he's been given from his faith, and particularly the story that the church is telling regarding who Jesus is. And because the, the Da Vinci Code was sort of used as the the springboard for Peter's conversations with these college students, uh, Clint makes a very important point that I actually made in one of my earlier podcasts about why I got into storytelling to begin with. And and that is this sort of feeling that he was a bit drawn towards the story that Dan Brown was telling about Jesus and the Christian faith, in many ways, finding it more compelling than the story that the church was telling. And Tomas sort of riffs off that and acknowledges the hypocrisy and judgment of the church um, that has given him a sour taste, uh, given his own background in the church. And then you have others who begin revealing their own sort of deep doubts. Logan with the resurrection and Dion with the Bible and again, Tomas with the church and the institution. And what do they make of all this? Even going so far as to wonder about why Christianity is as a singular religion and religious expression is the only way to God. All, I think, uh, representative of what many in our culture and maybe many within our churches themselves voice. Maybe you yourself have voiced the exact same kinds of doubts and questions and wrestling. Well, I'd like to end in the same way that Peter ends his group discussion with... uh, encouragement. He says, first of all, he thanks Sam for sharing some of his own story in which he takes his friends to task a bit in uh, their questions and doubts and complaints about Christianity, giving his own experience and perspective as a Messianic Jew who found his Messiah in Jesus. And at the end of that, his own Sam's own confession of the Lordship of Christ, Peter thanks these guys for opening up. And then he says, he says this, he says, thanks for your openness and honesty. Thanks for listening to each other, even though it might have been hard at times. Know that you're not alone in your doubts. Know that Jesus can handle your doubts, that he invites you to explore those doubts but also know that he is calling you out of doubt and into belief. But however long it takes you to get there, I totally believe he's with you every step of the way. I believe the same thing. 
I believe that it's good to question and poke and prod and be open and honest about our doubts and the things that confuse us about faith and about God and about this whole Christian thing and faith thing. And it's okay to voice it and to be honest about it and authentic about it. And along the way, Jesus is with us in it all, standing with us, but also calling us out of it into belief and faith in him, who he is, what he did. Thanks again for listening to the Religion and Fiction podcast and for engaging in the Religion and Fiction book club. Would love to hear your thoughts in the comments below and be sure to sign up to the newsletter for insights into the intersection of the sacred and story. Join us next week for week three, exploring chapters 13 through 19. In the meantime, happy reading.